0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash W-T-F.
1: Lock the gate.
0: <laughs> All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Maron. This is my podcast, W-T-F. How's it going? Tall Wilkenfeld is here, and she's a... Um, She's a genius bass player. I don't know if you know her, but she's played with uh, Jeff Beck, Herbie Hancock. She's played with everybody. She's just a wizard, and she's amazing, and she's got a new record out called Love Remains. It's great, and it's available now wherever you uh, get your music, but uh, she's very young, um, and she's just a um, a prodigy, I guess you would call it. Is that what is? is that the word? Not protege. That's the other word, prodigy, but, uh, but she's also a human. And she just has this gift. She's a gifted person. And I was uh, excited to talk to her because uh, she's been hanging around comedy clubs for a while. She likes comedy. She was always a, a friend of the comics. And, you know, she, she hangs out. I have played uh, music with her. But uh, I used to see her around. It was funny. When I first saw Tall when Jeff Ross introduced me to her, I, she said she was a musician. And, like, really, in my mind, I was like, okay, yeah. Not totally dismissive, but, uh, I, I, you know, just a, a little bit snide and condescending. I just thought another singer songwriter in Los Angeles turns out she's a fucking genius. But uh, also, you know, outside of that, she's going to play a song at the end uh, in the garage. Now, as you know, if you listen to the show, if you listen to this part of the show, I've had to move into my house uh, to like it's a real you know, it's a real scene up here in this spare bedroom i'll tell you but uh is going to play a song and then after that instead of me playing my guitar noodling we're going to play a very organized bit of business we're going to uh sort of do the world premiere of the song that tall and i wrote and she produced from the new lynn shelton film sort of trust you'll be able to see the film eventually but you know it premiered at south by southwest so i want to play this song I want to play you the song that I wrote with Tal and I was in the studio. I was in the studio with the likes of Zach Ray and Tamir Barzillay and Jimmy Z Zavala, the harp player, and Doyle Bramhall and Tal and me on guitar feeling very insecure. I mean, I you know brutally like, yeah, I don't, I shouldn't be doing this. Just, you know, let, let Doyle do it. But uh, we did it and the song is called New Boots and it will be, at the uh, tail end of this broadcast, if you're interested in it. it's a it's a riff on the Bo Diddley groove, and uh, you know obviously you know we, we I didn't write a symphony it's a you know it's a it's basically a hopped up blues number, but I did uh, I did come up with the progression and and oddly I I, I riffed the original harmonica part which stayed the riff but uh, you know the harp player he's a, a wizard that Jimmy and uh, he he did it. He did it correctly, but uh, look forward to that. That's going to happen for you if you stay on board throughout the entire show. Also, uh, last year, one of my guests uh, was a comic I've known for a long time, Vanessa Hollingshead. She was on episode 922 telling her story. It's a brutal story, but uh, but it turns out okay. And now she's uh, she's done her first Showtime comedy special, and that's airing this Saturday. And it's a great it's a great thing. It's a, she's got a hell of a tough tale uh, to tell uh, in her personal life, and she really came out. She came out of it on top. She she's alive and she still works a lot, and she's funny. The show, the special, it's called "Funny Women of a Certain Age." It's the first TV comedy special featuring six women all over the age of fifty. It's hosted by Fran Drescher, and it's on Saturday night, March twenty third at nine PM. And our friend Vanessa is on that. And uh, congratulations to her. It's a tough road, man. It is a tough road. And I've got dates coming up. And uh, I've got one coming up this Saturday. This Saturday night at the uh, Wheeler Opera House in Aspen, Colorado. And I'm a little tweaked about it. And I'm, I'm just trying to dig into my, my guts my, my, where the sad tugging is. And, you will figure out why am I tweaked out about it? At what point? Well, let's get into that in a minute. Let me just tell you where else I'm going to be. Boulder's sold out, but the U.K. dates, I think, are some are still available. The Lowry in Salford, England on April 4th. Royal Festival Hall is available April 6th in London. The Rep Theater in Birmingham, England, uh, April 8th. I think there's tickets for Vicar Street in Dublin on April 11th. There might be a few. I'm not sure. But Aspen, Colorado why am I tweaked out about Aspen, Colorado? It took me a while to track it. Cause I, you know, the wheel, the, the deal is, is that, you know, it's not a normal town. It's a ski town and um, tickets were moving. Okay. But they were like, don't worry about it. Everyone buys their tickets the day before the day of, when they get off the slopes, they wonder what's going on in town and they come out if there's something going on because it's a ski town and that's what you do. You kind of, you know, hold up up there and, You go to the restaurant a couple of times, you go do a thing, but you know, it's a laid back environment. And if, uh, there's a big show in town, even if you don't know who the guy is, why not go? It's, it's right down the street and we're here at in Aspen. Fine. I am not the kind of comic that has any problem performing for strangers. I, you know, I'm more than happy to have a following. I'm glad that people pay to see me. I'm not afraid of, of working for people that don't know my work. That's how I trained that's what we do. That's what uh, the job is. You go in and you should be able to make a room full of strangers who don't know who you are laugh. That's the job. So that's not really what's bothering me. Obviously, I want to sell tickets. But then I started to realize, holy shit, I've been to Aspen a lot. And some of those times were not good times. And I, I think yeah, I'm no psychologist or psychiatrist, but I I believe there are there's a whole spectrum of of PTSD, you know, obviously there's the far end of the spectrum, the the tragic and intense cases revolving around war and assault and uh, you know all all kinds of horrible things, but there's also the more mild, I think, uh, comedy specific PTSD, which is like, did you go to that place before and just fucking tank? Did you just fucking die? Did you bomb? badly and you know is that stuck in your heart somewhere as a precedent there's that kind of ptsd and that that i got i think i got a little of that i think i got a little of that in aspen this is also a a big pitch for my show if you're in aspen (laughs) you might you might want to come see if i can you know pull myself out of the personal swamp of past trauma uh and uh and rise to the occasion which i will I know I will, but I did have to feel like yeah, I did did have to sort of dig a little deep to figure out why, uh, you know, my 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 chest is tightening over the idea of it. Every time I've gone up there back in the day was a struggle, man, was a struggle because it used to be the uh, HBO Aspen Comedy Festival. It was the biggest festival that you could be invited to. And the first year I went there, I was, a, a, you know, a, a guy holding a mic for Comedy Central. I did a couple of sets and I was younger and I just like, you know, the the, the places were filled with about a third of the people were in show business. A, a third of the people were locals. Another third of the folks were just ski people. I psyched myself out that was the first year and then the next year i went back with jerusalem syndrome so i'm doing a one-man show at a comedy festival i was used to doing it you know in a theater with lights and cues and everything i didn't have them and again third of the people show business some locals some ski people watching me do this jerusalem syndrome it went okay but there was nothing relaxed about it and i think that same year That was the year that, uh, you know, that alternative comedy or what we were calling alternative comedy was very popular or it was at least a thing. And Comedy Central did a special called um, Kicking Aspen that night in that room. And I believe it's the same fucking room that I'm going to play on Saturday. The Wheeler Opera House where we shot Kicking Aspen or as my friend, uh, my old friend Ross Broccoli said, uh, Dragging Aspen. I remember exactly the decisions I made, and and how it went. I was doing you know shows at the Luna Lounge in New York. I was doing story driven stand up, which I still do, but I'm good at it now. And uh, you, you know, it, you know, in my mind, at that time, it didn't have to be punchline efficient. Uh, you, you know, you just had to lock in and you know be carried by the tail and get the laughs where they came and. You know, I chose this, uh, these longer pieces that I loved that looked good on paper, but I went out there and um, just ate it. I mean, nothing. I, there is a silence when you're bombing that is inexplicable. There's almost like a vacuum to it. These jokes are just going out and they just land, not even with a thud. They just, they, they sort of get sucked into a silence that is simultaneously with each beat that is supposed to get a laugh, as it gets sucked into the silence, some sort of weird, circuitous energy comes and starts just crushing your heart from the inside with each joke that goes out into the ether and just gets sucked in. And what comes back is this, this clinching in your chest, in your heart. And you're like, ah, oh, another one didn't work. Yeah, sometimes, you know, if you get good enough at the thing, you know, after years of experience, you can sort of unfuck yourself from a bomb in motion by, uh, you know, drawing attention to it or changing direction. You know, when you don't have the skill set to either absorb a failure like that or or worm your way out of it through charm or or diversion, all you know is that it's happening and it's going to keep happening and you're in it and it's not going to stop and you're just going to have to ride it out. It's almost like some part of your your personality just shuts down and you're just up there and you feel it. There's no lonelier feeling, I think, really. In my experience, but I I'm, I'm willing to bet in a lot of people's experience and to be in front of a crowd and you're there to get laughs and you're not getting none. You're getting the opposite. Which isn't, um, as you would think, uh, booze. It's just the, the sort of vacuum of silence. But maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just it's just part of the job, folks. Just part of the job. But I think perhaps that's one of the reasons I'm a little tweaked about going to Aspen. But there is the possibility of victory. There is the possibility I'll go. And you know, these last fifteen years. Yeah, I've learned something and it'll be fine, which I'm sure it will. It might even be great. But uh, somewhere lodged in the back of my brain, not so much the back, seems to be right up front or, you know, in one of the chambers of my heart is me standing on that stage getting nothing, getting nothing. So, yeah. So that's one of the things nagging me. And then I had this other realization, you, you know, and it's not nagging me, but, you, you know, I got oh God. Can't I just let myself be happy, huh? Can't I just let myself do it? God damn it, there's there's no reason not to be. And I started thinking about this show, about my own capacity for relationship, for intimacy. Like, you guys listen to this show. I honestly talk openly, more openly about myself and my heart in a way that is embracing and open and vulnerable and candid with people that come in here, and I'm not going to see them again but I started thinking about who I was when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, and this is like, I don't know if I don't, I wouldn't put this in the, the PTSD spectrum, but, but it's a weird thing when I was younger, you know, I was a funny kid. So I kind of had a sort of a, I, I kind of floated, you know, in between different cliques in high school. Cause I, you know, I, I, I wasn't identified with any one click and I sort of had a, a sense of humor but there were times where the other thing about having a sense of humor and being an oddball is just that you know you want to hang out with the cool kids whoever the hell they are and you know you watch enough after school specials you realize maybe they're not so cool or you grow up and you realize no one's that cool and especially not in high school or junior high but but there is this idea that, you know, you want to be one of them and you hang out with them. So I would, you know, make them laugh and talk to them and, you know, try to be their friends. And then, I you know, you'd hang out with them for once. And then you just wonder if you're ever going to hang out with them again or, you know, why they, why they didn't call you back or how how come they don't want to hang out with you anymore. And I wonder if there's some part of me, a little little part of my heart that, that, that you know, just keeps, you know, reopening that wound every time I have someone over. But of course not. Because, you know, I, you know, I have a place in this business and, um, you know, I, I'm not saying I want to hang out necessarily with everybody that comes in here, but I've definitely had some pretty amazing people in here. And I think there must be part of me that thinks like, you know, why, why can't I be friends with them? And then they, they come and we talk and I'm like, that was fun hanging out. Can we, we're not, well, I'm never going to talk to you again, unless I run into you at a show of some kind, we're not going to be friends. And I wonder if there's a, just a little. A little touch of heartbreak, you know, after everybody I talk to individually leaves my home. I wonder if it's down there. I wonder if I'm overthinking this. So tall, tall Wilkenfeld, the wizard, the bass wizard. Uh, She's amazing. And, you know, as I said earlier, I met her at the comedy store and, uh, you know, we have since played together a couple times and uh, we played a song together that you can hear at the end of this a song we wrote together and played with a group of musicians. Uh, she has a new record out. It's called Love Remains. It's her new album. It's available now wherever you get your music. And this is um, me and Tal having a, a nice, uh, nice chat Get your podcasts. So let's go back because I got to understand some things. I was a little insecure about you coming over. <laughs> Why insecure? Because I mean, like, look at my setup. Like you, you're in studios all the time. and I've got this rinky-dink setup. I can't even hook up my guitar pedals properly.
1: Mm.
0: When I, you know, you've played with a lot of amazing musicians. Myself being one of them. Of course. Uh, me, Jeff Beck. Herbie Hancock. I'm glad to be part of that list. Um, but when I worked with you in the studio, it was like sort of I knew nothing, and you knew everything. So like I do sound, you know, but I just do talk sound. But I was still like, you know, you're a professional,
2: right? Well, you're over. you're a a professional conversationalist. I know. I know. Uh, yeah. So I'm completely a fish out of water here. Yeah, but so uh, we're even now.
0: <laughs> okay, fine. So you, like, you grew up where? Sydney. In Sydney, in the city, I'm
2: still growing up, but
0: big city. But you're yeah. not—you're no child.
2: No, you I look mean, like so
0: you're—you look like a child, but <laughs> you're not—you're not a kid.
2: No, I just mean I.
0: Yeah, strive I know. To what. Always evolve. I know, I know. I, I <laughs> listen to the record. You seem to be wrestling with some things.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you got—you having a—you having a rough go at the emotional business. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, right? Oh.
2: I don't know. Come
0: on. Queerly <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you got, like I've talked to songwriters before and I always assume they're writing about themselves and most of them tell me they're not, but this seems like a personal record. Like you're writing from your point of view. You're not making up fictional characters' voices.
2: Mm. I'd say like, I can't say like 100% or 0%, like mm-hmm. it's it's varying degrees for each song. Yeah? Like, yeah, like it, it may start off like, with an experience in my life, and then as I start writing the song, uh, I'll adapt it to a story that best fits the concept of what I'm trying to say. Oh, right. And Or it could happen the other way around. I might watch a movie and be inspired to write a song based off of that narrative, Right. and then it comes sort of, uh, if I find a way for it to seep into uh, one of my, Experiences that I've had in the past, right? you know, so it's like a a melting pot of experiences.
0: Did that happen? Did you see a movie and write a song that was many times? Really? Yeah. Like what movies?
2: Uh, I watch like a lot of old classics.
0: Yeah. Like which, which, which old classic movie launched a song?
2: I I don't remember now because I I do it often.
0: Wait, you just watch part of a movie or watch the whole movie? Actually,
2: I I have a habit of like turning on a movie and watching it for 20 minutes, pressing pause and writing. Right,
0: really? Yeah, no, I do it all the time. And it's just the dialogue or the situation or.
2: It could be either of those things or it could be just visually what I'm seeing or how it emotionally, you know, stimulates me.
0: But you can't remember any of the movies.
2: I mean, I remember some of them, but I I couldn't say like, oh, it was definitely Taxi Driver that made me write so-and-so song.
0: But that was an inspirational one?
2: I love Taxi Driver. Sure, who
0: doesn't love Taxi Driver? But what, what, are you going to write a love song?
2: (laughs) Well, I I think I did write a few
0: (laughs) failed love songs. (laughs) Failed love songs inspired by (laughs) Travis Bickle's... (laughs) D- journeys through life <laughs> well that's sweet i'm sure that uh, i'm sure scorsese and paul schrader and de niro would be happy to ins- to know that they've inspired some love songs <laughs> that was probably th- part of their intention sydney australia i've been to i went to uh uh bondi is that how you say it yeah bondi beach i swam in the ocean pool in that pool that's right on the beach yeah yeah that was nice cool did you swim there
2: yeah when i was a kid
0: but only when you were a kid yeah is that way but it's like ocean water right mhm it's
2: nice you know i when i was about i guess 13 14 it's when i i started getting into like figuring out yeah what my passion was right and i was definitely into sports well before i was into music so when you were a kid yeah well i only picked up guitar at 14.
0: well let's see so you have brothers and sisters no no, no. you're only child i'm an
2: only child
0: of the of the sydney uh uh the the sydney wilkem yes (laughs) (laughs) you're jewish Mm -hmm. is there a big jewish community there yeah did you grow up in a jewy yeah you did pretty much like how jewy like um, um like uh, like we we go to <laughs> show weekly or not the twice a year like the rest of us.
2: Um I ended up being somewhere in the middle. Uh-huh.
0: You know? But your family's religious?
2: Uh my grandparents are. And they're in were, Sydney as well? We were religious. Um yes. Where they
0: were? How did the how did the uh, the Jews of uh, Sydney end up there? How did they they're there for many generations like
2: Um I mean there's a there's a huge South African community yeah. that came over in the 90s after what happened there and it, there's um which which I what happened like, yeah, <laughs> which, there's which a one. lot of the, <laughs> um then there's a lot of people that came from Europe like right. my, all my grandparents all four of them are from, from but they Eastern
0: were, Europe. Oh okay so that was one of the sort of like let's get the fuck out of here mm. we'll go to Australia so you're like so they your grandparents moved there from Europe or wherever yeah yeah oh that's interesting so they made a choice to go to Australia as opposed to America yeah or anywhere else in the world.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Australia's a weird place to go, kind of, but I guess they were like, it's wide open, <laughs> and there's no Nazis there, let's go there.
2: Uh, my grandpa's a Holocaust survivor. So, really? Yeah, he escaped when he was 12.
0: From a camp? <clears throat> well,
2: just... right before um, his, everybody else, like his um, mom and yeah. and siblings were taken to camps, he escaped right before. Oh my God. And
0: um, how would he do it? Ran
2: Jump. ran with a bunch of friends for many months. Oh wow! And uh, I mean, he has a whole story that's fascinating, and and he he's one of my biggest inspirations. Is like, he around still? He actually just passed away during the making of this album. Oh. I actually dedicated my album to um, my family members because yeah. both of my grandparents passed away and uh, and also a lot of good friends of mine. So
0: they all passed away?
2: Yeah, in the past few years I've lost a lot of people in my life like really? like about 20. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, I mean your
0: grandparents, you know, you kind of understand they they're going to go.
2: Yeah. It's just just strange timing to lose a lot of people
0: when you're doing a record.
2: Yeah, quickly. Yeah. That's how I got into comedy. Was was like just losing a lot of friends suddenly. Yeah, and uh, one of my friends suggested that I go and see some live comedy.
0: In where you were here?
2: Yeah, uh-huh. this was only a couple of years ago.
0: And that's last. when he started showing up at the store. Yeah. How did your grandfather inspire this record? In sense, in his story.
2: Well, it, it wasn't so much that he inspired this record. It was that he he bought me my first guitar. Oh Firstly, yeah? when I was fourteen. and when I was sixteen and I told my parents, hey i'm I want to leave Australia and go to America, you know as as some parents would feel nervous, yeah, uh, my I looked at my grandpa and he's like, and i said you you've been on your own since you were 12 and you've you're you've inspired me to be independent and take care of myself and this is what i want to do and he, he gave me the thumbs up
0: he did said, go ahead uh, go ahead how old was he when he did that like 80 yeah maybe 70 something wow so he was the one guy your parents were nervous but he was like go for it
2: one of my parents was more nervous than the other but i i think that um I mean, all's good now. Well yeah, i, was I mean, so it's, young. It's like, a normal
0: reaction yeah, when like you know, when your 16-year-old daughter 16-year-old girl, your only like. daughter, your only child wants to run away to America in a, with a guitar bag. Right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but
0: before that you were you were just what, playing soccer and stuff I and mean,
2: I was playing like uh touch football. Mhm. Um I was into watching rugby. Yeah. Um, I was really into long-distance running. Like you did that? Obsessed with long-distance running.
0: You used to do that? Yeah. Do you run now?
2: Um, like in the gym. Right, but... that's what I mean,
0: but you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: But like it was a thing for me. before. Like before music, running was my thing.
0: That, that was your goal. You were going to be a runner.
2: Yeah, there was like, I remember doing these really long-distance runs and there was especially like one competition that was, you know, I think it was like... Five mile yeah. or whatever it was a really long run yeah. and there was one girl that i was like i just need to beat this one girl because apparently <laughs> she was the best right right and so i went and uh, i did this long run and and i beat her oh good and as Thank a result God. i went and like i was so excited i was celebrating and and, and jumping up and down and i i hurt my back <laughs> so I, I i couldn't run for a few weeks because of your celebratory dance right so i was like what am i gonna do now and I'm walking or hobbling along in my school, and and I see a guitar hanging in one of the rooms.
0: Yeah. You'd never played one before?
2: No. I'd never even seen anybody play a guitar.
0: Come on. How never. old were you? 14. And you'd never seen someone play a guitar? Never. What, were you being held in a basement?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I didn't really grow up with music or TV. Like It was in a very sheltered situation. No TV? Um. I mean, I wasn't really allowed to watch TV okay. because, you know, uh, well, my my parents had been divorced since I was two years old. Okay. So, I only really grew up with my mom. Okay. And my grandparents. Okay. Like, they both kind of right. raised me, uh, go but, back and forth. But and you stuff. knew
0: your dad. He was around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, and uh, and my mom was just really into academia. Okay. Like, she wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. Was
0: she in academia?
2: No, not really. Okay. And so like I asked over and over if I could play guitar and it was I got a no many many times. Huh. This was after I'd like walked past a guitar at the school,
0: not before that. Just after N- you, you No, were, no, once I saw yeah. it
2: cuz I I had my eye on it and I and I actually grabbed it, I picked it up and I somehow played a chord and and tears started rolling down my really? face and I started writing a song and I was I felt like it wasn't me even playing. It, really, it was really spiritual. You
0: played a chord. Yeah. Do
2: you know? Do you, in retrospect, do you know what chord it was? I don't. Or know. How did you figure
0: out I, a chord? I, I you, don't. You're saying this was some sort of divine intervention.
2: <laughs> it it felt like that. It did. It really did. Yeah. And I I went home and I can I play? Can I play? And eventually the, the agreement was okay. You can play. Only after you do all your homework, and maybe you'll do, be allowed to play for half an hour a day. Yeah. Like only if you do the. like, okay, okay, sure, sure.
0: <laughs> so, so when did you get the and guitar? When did your grandfather get one? Weeks it later. Oh, okay. I got, I got one. You told your grandfather you wanted one. Yeah. And he gave you one.
2: Yeah. He what got kind one. was it? It was like, it was like a package for like, you know, maybe one hundred and fifty dollars, and you got like a really cheap Fender Squire or something yeah. like that. With, uh, oh, came with the amp? With the, with the amp and strap and yeah, yeah, picks yeah. or right, something. Right, sure. It was, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Bargain. Yeah, sure. Um, like a Stratocaster style?
2: Sort of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And-
0: uh, I bought that same package for my niece. Oh, nice. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, I, I guess what that did was, you know, when you, when you have that kind of restriction, like you're about yeah. to play half an hour a day, it, it incentivized me to teach myself how to learn quickly and absorb information fast, and it also taught me how to practice in my head without an instrument. Mm. So even though I only had an instrument in my hand for half an hour a day, I, I'd be playing in my head all the time.
0: So were you? How were you, you, you? So you didn't take any lessons?
2: I did. I there was a teacher at the school, and I that was part of my request. Was like, can I have lessons? Oh, okay. Yeah, wow. um, and. And he's like, well, the first thing, like he showed me a few chords. Right. Um, and uh, there was another girl that started at the same time as me. Yeah. And uh, she, I guess she, she she quit like four weeks later because she was upset with my progress compared to her. She was like, oh, comparing our progress. It wasn't that girl
0: you beat in the race, was it? <laughs>
2: no. That would have <laughs> <Or> been amazing. <laughs> she, she, I
0: don't think she could take another hit, really. And who knows what would have happened with your excitement of beating her. <laughs> might have lost a hand. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so he's like, well, he, you know, you've learned these chords really fast. Yeah. Why don't you go and go and teach yourself the solo to Stairway to Heaven? And
0: without have pick, have, without having picked any solos before, he said, "Go try that." Yeah, just just so He's he's seeing, he was testing whether or not you were like a wizard.
2: Maybe. I don't know. I've been playing for maybe 3 weeks or something. And did you point. figure it out? Yeah. <laughs> And then like maybe a couple weeks after that he's like, "Can I can I study with you?" No. I swear, it was really funny. Well, what well, what well, but did he did you teach him? What were
0: you going to teach him?
2: I don't know. Did you did he study with you? Uh, no? Okay.
0: <laughs> but it was flattering.
2: It was cute. Yeah.
0: So you've impressed the teacher and he's he's qu- he quit too. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you you scared one girl out of musicianship and you made the teacher quit. <laughs> Good job. You're winning. All right, so then what happens? How do you how do you pro- proceed from there? At um, 14, you, you... Well, it
2: was like, I was technically like 14 and a half, so I guess like I started, you know, writing songs and there was a, a jazz band that I I joined and I started... But there was never any guitar in the, the jazz band prior, but I begged. I said like, I'll play like, you know, uh, Freddie Green style or whatever, just like chunk, chunk. And so I did that for a little while...
0: But wait! But where were you learning the chords exactly? Like, did you have a book? Did you just like? Did they just? Uh, did you just hear them?
2: The, like it mean, was like like chord charts. Like okay, chord charts. Yeah. Okay,
0: right. So you could see uh, the little picture. Uh uh-huh. And could you read music
2: yet? No. Uh huh. Not really. I mean, I could kind of figure. I could figure it out. Not in. Re- not like sight read, but I could read notes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right, right. So you're playing in a jazz band at 14 and a half with like uh you know, just the you know uh, uh the school kids. A few a few lessons under your belt. Yeah. And you're just like you, you can just do it a little bit. A little bit. I
2: mean, yeah,
0: I, I guess it's sort of
2: like, it's sort of embarrassing cuz I don't really know how it exactly happened. It, it happened fast.
0: It it was just happening. Yeah. You were like I can hear this, I can feel this, I can do this. Yeah. What what jazz numbers were the was the uh, 14th? It was just
2: all like big band songs. I don't even right. remember the songs.
0: Yeah. But like um, junior high big band songs.
2: <laughs> I guess. And then I started like um you know because I hadn't heard much music yet. Like I really only had 3 CDs. Was there no radio in Australia? I like I literally like <laughs> I mean it wasn't part of your life. It unfortunately no
0: but that's what you're you're telling me it wasn't so much that you were there was no one you were there was
2: no one encouraging me to listen to music it didn't or interest pla- you there was no no oh, it interested me before but-
0: before you started playing you know like because you're, you're making it sound like it's just like music was this alien thing in it the- kind
2: of was like uh, no before i was just into running
0: right yeah okay um, you, you can only handle one thing at a time.
2: Maybe. Actually, that's probably <laughs> very true about me. Yeah.
0: It, all your energy goes into the one thing. <laughs> kind right? of. Kind right. of does. I get it. Yeah. yeah. So, it just wasn't part of your I life. do
2: get really mono-focused on something that I'm interested in doing.
0: So, that's, well, that's sort of fascinating. So, once you, you kind of break open to this other plane, which is music, your head's sort of like just a sponge. And you have a, a proclivity for it, so you just wanted to get as much in as possible.
2: Yeah, and I the three CDs that I had yeah. was Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced? Yeah, and a Herbie Hancock album. Which one? Thrust. Uh huh. And then Rage Against the Machine, Evil Empire. Sure. So it was a very eclectic. It's
0: like all you need.
2: <laughs> I mean, if you if you think about those three yeah. artists and what I sound like. It kind it, of sort of makes sense.
0: Yeah. I could definitely see that.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'd heard Hendrix. Right. You know? um, and
0: and that, that that's a good even if wide you, range yeah. of of him.
2: Even if you are like on a desert island and yeah. never hear music and someone just plays you Herbie Hancock and Jimi Hendrix him. and Rage Against the Machine, it'll give you quite a big vocabulary.
0: Yeah. You know? I guess so. So, so those are your records. So you're learning all those songs too, I imagine. Once you, st- I
2: never really like learned songs, mm. like besides, like me the, neither. The That's cord, where you like, and I have the, something in the common. The chord charts, yeah. Like, I I'll learn them if someone tells me I need to learn a song for a particular purpose. But like, yeah. it was never part of my practice to like learn songs.
1: Yeah.
0: What was your practice? Just to riff and it was got- just to
2: like like play along with something, and I yeah. like you know improvise right. on it yeah. or make up my own stuff.
0: So, you do the jazz band thing, and you've got your three CDs, and you're playing some big band music. And so, who starts to turn you on to other music? When do you start to, like at 14, 14 and a half, or 15, what other stuff are you putting into your head other than those three CDs?
2: There wasn't much. Hmm. There were a few people listening to bands like Incubus and Tool. Sure um ben harper those mm-hmm. th- they were popular like all the bands coming out of the 90s lincoln park is yeah. another one but basically until i left home at 16 that's all i'd heard i hadn't heard it
0: ben harper lincoln park tool <laughs> and incubus. Hendrix, incubus herbie hancock <laughs> jimmy hendrix and uh and uh, Raging Against the Machine. Uh-huh. That's, what, that's And
2: what... and my grandparents, like when I was a kid, yeah. uh, basically the only music that was played was classical or like really old school like jazz,
1: uh-huh. like
2: big band yeah. or not even bebop actually, just like big band jazz by my grandparents on my mom's side. Like
0: Artie Shaw, Stan Kelton. I don't
2: even know what they were playing because okay. it, was, it was only literally from the car ride from home to school that would be the only time I'd ever hear music for like 20 minutes full jazz orchestra yeah Uh and then and then on my dad's side it would be like classical like Vivaldi oh yeah Mozart and stuff like that that's not bad so so basic uh, so I had classical since I was really young and and now like Uh, my family tell me that like when I was like three and I heard Vivaldi I was like singing along and tapping along and and I looked really musical and then they were like we
0: gotta put a stop to (laughs) 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 that. gotta nip that in the bud right now or we're gonna lose that kid (laughs) they just stifled it out of the gate now after a huge success as a musician they're like we gotta tell you something we knew you were going to be great <laughs> when you were three, but we tried to really <laughs> stop that. So at sixteen, though, were you were you pissed off at them? Were you like oh, "fuck you guys, I'm leaving"? Or was it more like you know I really need to do this? Was it? It um, must be hard to be the only kid and have to say that to them. No.
2: Well, again, like my da- I, I didn't really grow up with my dad, right. but I sort of we started like hanging out yeah. when I was about fourteen. Yeah. Again, because I would started playing guitar and he was yeah. like, he was super like inspired by that. Oh, like, really? He, he so loved, he dug it. Yeah, he loved it. Yeah. I, because I was so uh, driven to do this, yeah. like I didn't want to listen to what anybody else had to say about it or how sure. they felt about it. I was, was pretty uh, determined. Uh-huh. So, you know, it was, it was tense, but after like a few years and they started seeing that I could actually have a career. Yeah. As a musician, everything kinda of settled back down. Right. But, but it, like it was definitely tense. But
0: where'd you get the bread to to make the journey and well, did I they- got
2: a scholarship at a music school basically like when I told my dad yeah. that I had started guitar, he's like, Yeah, I heard about this music school in America. You should check it out. Which one? It's called Llama.
0: Uh-huh.
2: It was like, a, it's like a guitar school. Yeah. And then one of the teachers just coincidentally happened to come to Australia. Yeah. And it worked out so that I could get a scholarship to this school. Well, you met the guy? Yeah.
0: How'd you meet? Like, who set that up?
2: The, I went the with- The
0: teacher you scared away? I
2: went with my dad.
0: Oh. Yeah. Oh, you set up an appointment kind of thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you sat with him in the guitar?
2: No, I just met him, that and then and then we set up another appointment. Where you played? Yeah,
0: but you sat there. It was with like your, a
2: lifetime with again.
0: your little squire, <laughs> and you did your business. Yeah, <laughs> and he was like, "Holy shit, you're you're in."
2: I got in, yeah. Oh, but, so- and then I and then I didn't I didn't go to class that much because. Basically, once I moved to America, I started practicing. From I went from half an hour a day to like six hours a day.
0: Oh, and then the whole thing just opened up.
2: Well, well, no, actually, I hurt my hand.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I gave myself tendinitis.
0: So you moved to So, so they felt a little more secure. You move here because you're going to school. Did you have a sponsor? Did you have some place to live? Did they, you know, like how did that work? Or did they just say? No, like, they
2: have had these. Uh, Places where you, where everyone lived. Oh, like a dormitory. This, yeah, sort of, sort yeah. of. Yeah.
0: Where was the place. school in New York? Uh, Pasadena. I was out here. Yeah. Okay. It was in L.A.
2: Yeah, I moved to L.A. first.
0: Okay. You never, uh, you never went to New York.
2: I did go to New York.
0: Oh, but you moved here first to go to Lama. Yeah. In Pasadena. Yeah. Because you met the teacher in Sydney. Yeah. And he was impressed. Yeah. And you get here, and you, within months you're like, "This is bullshit." <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to play in my room.
2: Well, no, actually, it was. It wasn't that. It was like I want to practice for six hours a day, and I did that for maybe a week, and I hurt my hand, so yeah. I had to stop playing. Oh man! Yeah,
0: you quit guitar.
2: Well, I I had to stop.
0: It hurt that much.
2: Well, the doctor said, like, if you want to get better, you gotta you gotta stop playing for a few months.
0: So a few months.
2: So a few months. So it's like, what am I gonna do for a few months? Now I'm like in America, yeah. Like, and I can't really play. So Pasadena. what am I gonna do? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So I started like going into the drum labs and playing drums with one hand, and like, uh-huh. you know, just every time I saw a bass, I would kind of, you know, slap on it like with my, with my right hand because my left was kind of yeah. hurting. And and I and it was in that period that I decided, you know what? When I start playing again, I think I want to be a bass player because everyone was looking at me like she's a bass player. Look at her. Look at her. Look how rhythmic she is on the drums and yeah. she's slapping the bass. She she's even slapping the guitar. You know, she was going for the rhythmic stuff. Like I could solo and stuff. Yeah. But I, I just was into groove. Yeah. And so that's when I switched to the bass at the, seventeen.
0: The tendonitis yeah. period. <laughs> Thank God for tendonitis. <laughs> Forced you to get to to what you really wanted to do.
2: I guess. Yeah.
0: So you 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 get you get better, and then you're a bass player. Right. You got rid of the squire. <laughs> <laughs> Let that go. <laughs> <laughs> And you went out and got what was the first bass you got?
2: I actually had it was some variation on yeah. on offender. then a few months later, I got a music man, yeah, which I liked and then I switched again because I went to uh this thing called the Nam show oh you know the yeah, Nam Show right and I was playing at one of the booths and turned out to be Roger Sadowski's booth mm-hmm. who I don't know if you're familiar with Sadowski's I'll just
0: pretend like I am okay, good, yeah. He's a bass guy, yeah, uh-huh.
2: he makes he's a luthier uh-huh and and he saw me play and he ended up helping me get an instrument for a lower cost, uh-huh because such amazing instruments.
0: yeah, but he and, wanted you to have he, one. yeah,
2: he was very supportive of yeah. me from from a young age. yeah so that and that's when I started playing Sadowski and and I played st- strictly that one Sadowski for about 10 years.
0: So this is at 17 or 18. Where you do you 17 yeah. you're 17 when you're at the Nam show Yeah and you impress the Sadowski fella Yeah yeah the, hey, I, it seems like you just show up places and old men are like, holy shit <laughs> <laughs> let, let me make sure this this young woman does whatever she needs to do <laughs> to, to follow her talent <laughs> Good for it that's good, right? I guess yeah so okay so you got now you got a Sadowski base you're mm-hmm. well equipped mm-hmm. and then when do you start playing with people? Okay. Um, what happens at the school? You just disappear. You, <laughs> you're like, well, that girl went here for a little while, and then she was hanging around the drum room, and then she, we never saw her again.
2: Basically, what happened was the, a phone call came into the school. This mm-hmm. is after I'd been playing for a couple months. The bass. Playing bass for a yeah. couple months. And they said, there's a drummer by the name of Vito Reza coming to the school and we need you to select your your best bass player and guitar player to accompany him because he can't bring a band.
0: Was he coming to do a clinic or a something? Clinic or yeah. something. Yeah.
2: And so they asked me. Right. Their their best bass player.
0: Who's been playing for three months. <laughs> like two.
2: Yeah. And a guitar player. Yeah. A really great guitar player. And I'd started writing like really pretty complicated songs with like time signature changes and all kinds. Of, I, I, f- I very quickly got into like sort of fusion music yeah. because when you're in a music school, like the focus is like to to become great on your instrument. Yeah. You know, I was just focused on that and that kind of music, jazz and fusion, like you need to have chops to play it.
0: Like Herbie and like Weather Report or like- what were, Yeah,
2: those are examples. Of yeah. You,
0: yeah. Or were you just making it up?
2: Well, I made a lot up. Yeah, yeah. but I. I But that was the area. Yeah,
0: because it allowed you to be instrumental and not sort of adhere to sort of boring pop or rock structure.
2: (laughs) Suppose. I mean, I didn't find the other stuff boring. I just wanted to explore my instrument more. Right. So it's just like a different avenue.
0: Well, that's what I think. That's that's what fusion is all about. It's like we've got jazz. Why don't we muffle that and ruin it a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing that. So, so yeah. the, so the guy comes. Kind of, yeah,
2: and I, I start writing uh, these strange songs. Yeah. So he's like, well, let's just let's do one of your songs, and uh, and we can play like a a jazz jazz blues or whatever. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And maybe we played a third. This is the drummer. What's his name? Vito. Uh huh. Turns out he's best friends with Vinnie Colaiuta. Do you know who that is?
0: From Frank Zappa's band?
2: Yeah. He's, yeah. That's where he started. He's a
0: drummer as well?
2: He's a drummer. Yeah. Yeah. And so-
0: What happens what, at the gig? Let's play well, some of your songs and do some jazz blues. So, so,
2: yeah. So we play the gig. Yeah. And at the end of the gig, he- he. And I already knew who Vinnie Colaiuta was yeah. because I, I'd heard some of this fusion music that was going around the school that everyone was freaking out about. And some people were calling me Mini Vinnie because I was playing kind of polyrhythmic drum stuff on my bass. Uh-huh. And I, 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 I heard some of this stuff. Anyway, so- who, What band
0: so, was it? Who, wh- was um, that?
2: there was one project he did called Charisma. Uh-huh. And just some other random yeah. things that he played on. Because, like, all the drummers were obsessed with him. Right. So, so, Vito, at the end of the show, he's like, Come on, come on! And he, like, dragging me, like, towards Vinny.
0: Oh, who was that? the thing? Yeah,
2: and he's like- uh, you got to meet this girl. You got to meet and and I was like really really shy. At the yeah. time. I was at like, 17 and like, you know, just just really shy. <laughs> I'd never me. met like a professional musician. I mean, this was all just starting to happen. Yeah. And I'm meeting Vidi Kaliuto, who's like, everyone's, like, every drummer's idol. Yeah. And, and I was like, All right, nice to meet you. Uh, and he's like, well, how long have you been playing? And I was like, two and a half months. And he's like, well, uh, we, we should play sometime. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we <laughs> sure. should. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but then a few months after that, I decided when I, because I, I heard Wayne Krantz, who's another, like, one of my favorite guitarists uh, in in especially in that in jo- that genre. Yeah. Um, and I and he was in New York and there was mm. a lot of great jazz happening in New York and so I decided I want to move to New York. I'm done with LA. <laughs> yeah. cuz um,
0: Wayne Krantz was there. Cuz
2: Wayne Krantz was there and yeah. Anthony Jackson was playing bass with Wayne Krantz, who, you know, is Anthony Jackson's one of the greatest bass players ever. Uh-huh. And I just wanted to be around that. I wanted yeah. to be around like the live jazz yeah. scene and all my heroes had had done that same thing of like going around to five clubs a night and who were your heroes well like charlie parker okay you right. know so you had done some
0: you had been been doing some reading and listening since yeah. you were 14 <laughs> you know getting up to all speed. in these first
2: few months of yeah. being in america i'm like being like saturated in all this like yeah. mainly jazz and fusion music because
0: of that school probably and the people that yeah, were there exactly yeah all the
2: students. So, I moved to to New York and I go every Thursday night to watch Wayne Krantz play with his band, which, you know, Anthony Jackson was playing with him a lot. And sometimes, like, Keith Carlock was playing drums. And there were different musicians that were circulating. Taylor Fave sometimes played bass. There was a whole variety of musicians. And, uh, you know, I started to become a little less shy because I was pretty shy when I was uh, in uh, LA. So uh, unshy enough to go up to Wayne Krantz and and Anthony Jackson and, and introduce myself.
0: Well, they must have seen you hanging around.
2: I guess, yeah. but then and then Anthony Jackson said to me, "Oh, I've heard of you, uh, <laughs> Lee Rittenauer in L.A. He told me about you." And I'm thinking, how did Lee Rittenauer hear like the
0: guitar player? Yeah, I don't yeah. even know how
2: he heard about me. Yeah, like what? <laughs> but I've heard about you. I've heard very good things, and. And I started gigging like, you know, I wanted to, like, you know, two, three gigs a night, just as much as possible all with the who? time. Any band I could find to play that would let me play with them. Like, know?
0: who were they? Some of them.
2: Random. I don't even uh, remember any of their names now.
0: You were just sort of a jazz bass player for hire in New York.
2: Yeah, but it wasn't even jazz music. It was every kind of yeah. music that was going on in New York. So just,
0: anyone who needed a bass player and they didn't want there. a tour necessarily, yeah. you sit in and do it. Yeah, I was there. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was See, starting to make a living as as a musician. Yeah, like, instantly, and
0: what happened with Andy Jackson?
2: So then he started showing up to like every one of my gigs and <laughs> sitting in the front row. <laughs> yeah, and like I'm sure other people were like, "Oh my God, that Anthony Jackson sitting Why in the front is he, row." Was he just
0: trying to fuck with your head?
2: I th- he was trying to show me support. Like, oh, good. It was kind of like a mentorship. Isn't that, is it,
0: isn't that weird how I always assume it's like, "What's he doing?" <laughs> Must have made you nervous.
2: <laughs> no. Oh wow! I was just happy.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's nice. I mean, because he
2: was really supportive, and yeah, like we never once picked up the bass together. Yeah. He he would just sit in his car with me, which I've heard is a thing with Anthony Jackson. Like apparently, like Steve Gadd has told me, and Vinny has told me, all these people have told me that basically Anthony likes to sit in his car and have yeah. conversations. Okay. So that's that's Anthony Jackson's thing. Right. So he'd sit in in the car with me, and we'd talk about music, and we'd listen to records. Yeah. And he said, t- oh, it's very interesting how they played that there and not there. And what did you think about that uh, part right there? W- what would you have done? Yeah. And, like, just asking me, quizzing me. Yeah. Musically. And, like, that was my my main study was just yeah. conversations. S-
0: sitting with Anthony Jackson in his car.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like pl- we-, we never, like, sat down with-, with two basses and played.
0: But it made you think about things differently.
2: I mean, I... Th- Honestly, I think that I was already thinking like that, but yeah. it was r- obviously amazing to have someone of his caliber yeah. to talk about these things with. Yeah. And like there'd be things I'd say he'd say. It was just a, a really nice conversation. Yeah. Um and yeah, I'm sure I learned a ton from yeah. that. And and also what was was nice was, you know, I I don't think that I, it was kind of hard to be taken seriously as like a really young-looking girl. Like Yeah. You know, people say I still look young now. Like, I looked like a 12-year-old. Yeah. And so, and he would always be like, just just no matter what, just don't give up. And y- you know, uh, and he's like, as Steve Gad used to tell me, on your worst day, you're still a bad motherfucker. <laughs> and that's what I have to say to you, Tal. On your worst day, <laughs> you're still a bad motherfucker. <laughs> and he used to say that over and over and over again. Um. So he was great um and then he eventually told wayne kranz about me who was like my favorite like absolutely my favorite and i told anthony you know like i really want to make a record i've written these songs yeah i think it'll help me get some gigs you know it just i've i've written like i don't know seven eight nine songs yeah do you think that like wayne kranz would would you know, he's like, well, just, just ask him. <laughs> uh, and so, and, and I did. And he said, yes.
0: To play on the record? Yeah.
2: And, <laughs> and I said, well, and he's like, well, who do you want to play drums? I'm like, well, I mean, uh, and, and, and Keith Carlock was, was standing right there. And he's like, well, you know, I'm like, you know, I've always dreamed of like playing with Vinny again, ever since he said that, you know, let's play sometime. Oh, yeah. But I, I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit just i feel nervous right now yeah. and he's in la and i'm in new york and he's like yeah use keith i'm like yeah well i love keith he's great so he said okay well uh, la 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 made the intros and and they all agreed to to make this record with me yeah which is really awesome <laughs> um so i made this r- record uh, <laughs> in a studio in new york yeah and uh and around about the same time, like within a few months, I was also, uh, the Derek Trucks and O'Teal Burbridge, from who were both playing with the Alman Brothers, yeah. they saw me play.
0: At one of your gigs. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And invited me to sit in with the Alman Brothers one yeah. night. Right. And uh, it was mainly O'Teal that was like, I'm just going to, you know, just one night during the middle of like Elizabeth Reed, I'm just going to. Throw you my bass and, and, or you can just go and plug in yours and, and, and that'll be that. Yeah. So I'm like, okay.
1: <laughs> I'm like,
2: <laughs> I've never played on a stage before. I've just played in these like, on these yeah. club gigs, yeah. right? And, uh, and, and, and so one night, you know, I guess I was maybe I was like 19, but at this point,
0: yeah.
2: He just walked off the stage. Yeah. And he's like, go. Yeah. You're,
0: you're in the wings? So,
2: yeah. I'm yeah. in the wings. And I go up. And we started playing Elizabeth Reed. And, like, I don't even think that everyone in the band knew this was going to happen. Like, Greg Allman was like, oh, there's, a, <laughs> there's this girl on the stage. <laughs> Who's this? And uh, and next thing I know, I see uh, O'Till. He's walked into the audience and he's just, like, smoking a joint in the audience just watching me. Yeah. Like, yeah! <laughs> Woo! Yeah. And I start playing this song and it turns into like this 40 minute version of Elizabeth Reed, at which point, like, I guess after about 25 or 30 minutes, the whole band walks <laughs> off the stage and it's just me and the bass <laughs> playing solo bass <laughs> for about four minutes. Wow. Because this is what they did in Elizabeth Reed. They let the bass do a solo by Oh, himself. and you didn't know that. I did know that. Yeah. And... Uh, I was ready for it to happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the band, half of the band didn't know that I was going to be doing this. Right. But Otil just...
0: Set it yeah. up.
2: Yeah. So then the drums joined back in and I continued soloing over the drums and yeah. that was that. And uh, Great night, though. It was an amazing night. Like, just at the Beacon Theater, it was my first show ever. <laughs> like, what? The, how does that happen? How did the crowd react? I got... Uh, yeah, like, they went nuts. <laughs>
0: I couldn't believe they a twelve-year-old played the bass <laughs> like that.
2: <laughs> so, so here I am. Like, I guess I'm like nineteen, and I have a, a record under my belt, and I've a recording of me with the Elmer Brothers, and the, the, they asked me back to play with them a couple times after that happened. So, mm-hmm. I guess, I guess I did okay. Yeah. Um. And then I decided, you know what, I've, I've done the, you know, I, I'd. I'd sort of played with these various jazz musicians. There was there was some other people that I'd met in New York. Like, it was one musician. Do you know Robert Glasper? No, should I? Yeah. No, I don't know. A- amazing piano player. And, like, I remember going up to him and asking the same thing. Like, hey, do you, do you mind playing my music with me? Like, yeah. And, and he agreed. You know, which was really nice of him because he'd never heard me play before. And like, uh-huh. him and a guy named Nate Smith played drums with me. And But and, people
0: know you at this point. I the, guess they
2: know me, but they like, I'm just fresh on the scene. Like yeah. some some people were really like, you know, there were there were other musicians that were really hard on me. They didn't want to hear me play or, you know, they, just who, weren't they gonna didn't want to hear it. this 12 year old girl play the electric bass in, in a jazz club where it was only supposed to be upright bass and you know what I mean, like some so people you- gave me a hard time, but there were people like Robert Glasper and Nate Smith and you know, and the like that were really, really nice to yeah. me and like played my music with me and were very encouraging so that that's nice and then I decided I wanted to go back to l a
1: <laughs> so
2: because I had then discovered you know what like that's the place where like the industry yeah. is, there's where like all the gigs are like the real gigs, not yeah. like the're playing in clubs for a hundred bucks a gig yeah. thing like I wanted to do some like some other kinds of gigs and so I-, I went back to LA at a certain point I'm like I really should call Vinny now that I'm now that I'm back yeah uh and and I did I said hey um I'm back in in LA and yeah. I I have this new record and
0: this is the record- one you did with Wayne Krantz or the one you did with the Nate? one with Wayne Krantz yeah
2: and I and I had this thing with the Almond Brothers, and uh, is is it cool? Like, could I maybe play you this stuff? And he said, cool. So we like met like at a Starbucks or something. And I played him the music, and he's like, wow, like he was very impressed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, let's let's get together and play. So so I I met up with him, and and we we had a jam. I don't know for maybe. 45 minutes just bass, drum? just bass and drums just bass and drums yeah he, i guess he wanted to just see if i could yeah Keep up yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and he was you know very supportive uh-huh and uh maybe like a few weeks later i get this call from Vinny saying that jeff beck was looking for a bass player for this one gig and pino couldn't make it yeah uh it was for Eric Clapton's Crossroads Festival. Sure, the and big uh
0: for the benefit festival for the drug rehab. Yeah. Yeah. All the guitar players go. Right. Yeah.
2: So he's like can you send the management your material like your the the Allman Brothers thing and the and the album just what you played to me. Yeah. Send it send it over. And so I did. And, uh, and I got the call that, like, they want to audition me in yeah. England. Jeff does. Yeah, Jeff Beck. Yeah. So I, like, I qu- quickly learn all of his stuff because I, I wasn't really familiar with his music yeah. yet. Uh, so I learned, like, all of his stuff. I, like, looked through the set list and saw what he was playing and learned maybe, like, 25 songs. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is one of the fo- funniest stories of my career, actually. Yeah. So, I'm really hungry as we're about to get on the plane. It's me and Vinny. Yeah. And we're going to to play with Jeff Beck. In London. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think he may have had some other gigs up his sleeve, but-
0: Who, Beck? Yeah. Yeah.
2: But he didn't mention them. It was just the crossroads. So, I'm saying, I'm really hungry. I need some- I I want some pizza or something. He's like, why don't you just eat on the plane? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm I'm really hungry now. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, we went to Wolfgang Puck. Sure. And uh, I ordered a, a- chicken pizza like uh, I don't know barbecue chicken yeah and I ate like two or three slices and we're on the plane and Vinny starts talking about you know he uh, very passionate about politics and and he was just raving on about something or other and I'm just sitting there listening to him I'm like hey Vinny, I'm um I'm feeling kind of kind of sick right now and he's like oh oh really well, anyway, so then this happened, and da da da, and he goes back to his story. Yeah. And I said, Excuse me. And I grab a bag and I, I throw up in the bag, and I hold the bag up next to my head. And I say, There it is. <laughs> and he's like, there, 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 what is? There, what is? And I said, Oh, I, I just threw up in the bag. I'll, I'll see you in about 10 hours. <laughs> Ran to the bathroom, I'm literally going the whole flight. Oh, my it God. Was, it was terrible
0: food poisoning.
2: Yeah. To the point where by the time the plane landed, (laughs) I basically fell down the stairs of the the plane, like onto my knees, started throwing up again, and an ambulance took me, and then Vinny was obviously coming with me yeah we bypassed immigration (laughs) and went straight to the hospital it was so funny i get to the hospital jeff beck's manager is there he's like oh well uh nice to meet you i've already got a drip in my arm at this point he's like i'll come in the morning and uh and collect you (laughs) the (laughs) vinnie got checked into a hotel down the street i get picked up at like 7 a.m i'm like pretty did it pass yeah, it was yeah, but I still felt really weird the yeah, next all day. Yeah,
0: dehydrated and fucked up.
2: Yeah. So he's like, "Okay, we'll we'll drive now to to Jeff's." <laughs> okay. So it's like 3 <laughs> hours in a car and I'm feeling so I we knock on the Jeff's door and it's like, "Righto, well, let's go. Let's go and play some music." I'm thinking like, "Oh, I thought we we're going to like just hang out for a second. I could yeah, unwind yeah. from No, it's straight up to the to the roof for this this top floor where he sets all this stuff up and we'll play and so we started playing and I, I you know it was fine it was it was great it was immediate chemistry
1: yeah
2: and he points to me during the stevie wonder song that he does called because we've, oh. we've ended his lovers oh okay and he says solo and so i start soloing on it and he was like really into it so he kept that in his set so not only did i get hired for the Clapton show, but he kept the solo in the show and then booked a whole tour that I was then a part of. And I was playing this solo every night. And, you know, that that, there was a video that went around of me playing a solo on that song uh, at Crossroads and then again at Ronnie Scott's club a few months later. And that kind of got a lot of attention online and pretty much became... Like like another calling card because from that, Herbie Hancock called me to do, you know, live at Abbey Road with him, and Prince saw that, and that's how Prince called me, and I started getting a lot of gigs from people seeing that video.
0: Wow, yeah, but you're confident at this point. Obviously, you've got you know you've got chops, you've got road experience now. You've yeah, got, I mean, I'd
2: been playing bass for like two years at this point.
0: But I mean, but you know, in in the big picture, <laughs> <I'm> that's... Just- <laughs> Right, okay, but 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 still, like two it, whole
1: years. But you you
0: whatever it is, you know this this gift that you have enabled you to sort of really kind of uh, do the exploring you wanted to do and gain the confidence that you needed to to show up for these things without being intimidated, mm-hmm. right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I actually think that the fact that I didn't grow up listening to. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up with The Stones right. and with Dylan even or, you know, Jeff Beck. and I didn't grow up listening to these musicians. So when I was meeting them and performing with them, I treated them like my peers. Right. Like, obviously, I was thoroughly impressed with their musicality, but I wasn't looking at them as people that... Like I'd read about in a life. book or had seen on TV. There were just people I'd be meeting like, oh, wow, yeah, he's a great guitar player. Let right, me, you had
0: no history yeah. with loving their music.
2: Yeah, let me just join in on the fun here. Yeah. And I think that that's what they liked about playing with me too, is that I wasn't Affected. treating them any differently. Right. Just a, just a nice musical conversation.
0: Right. Well, that's that's a that's a very unique thing mm. to to sort of like, that's where it sort of pays off. To because uh, I've had that experience talking to people, yeah. like you know, you talked to Bruce Springsteen about me, yeah. and he said that the reason he treated me differently was because I pushed him, and one of the reasons was like as much as I like Bruce, I wasn't a Bruce fanatic. Right. Like I knew Bruce, I you know I, I liked the music, yeah. but I wasn't like holy shit, Bruce Springsteen. So when I see a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. You know, other than Keith Richards, which that that interview is probably unbearable to listen to because I was (laughs) like beside myself, but like I just, it was just a person. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes a big difference with those guys who, and women, who who rarely get treated like that by anybody.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, when I did the, I think it was the 25th anniversary Hall of Fame show, we were playing at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. I guess this was in 2009. And I was playing with Jeff Beck and we were backing up yeah. Sting, Buddy Guy, a whole bunch of people. And actually, that was the first time I met Bruce Springsteen as he came up to me afterwards and was really nice to me. And there was this huge after party that happened after the show. And yeah. I remember two of my good friends came with me to this party. I had one on each arm. We were like, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, yeah we just played Medicine Square Garden and blah, blah. blah. And we're going up the stairs, and this guy comes up to me like, "Hey, yeah, I saw you play uh, in L.A. That was a great show." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, thanks, yeah." And I saw you play tonight again, fantastic, fantastic. I was like, "Cool, thanks." Uh, I'm tall. What? What's your name? Mick. And he walks away, and um, my friends just look at me like, "You, you, do do you know who that is, Tall?" No. Mick Jagger, you know, like the singer for the Rolling Stones. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> come on. This I have so many of these stories. Like I just didn't know. <laughs> That's I wasn't crazy. I didn't grow up with that music. No, I know,
0: but you, what you, you must be so like. You, it just you're so focused or so. I guess. Did you ever play with Mick?
2: Yeah, I, I <laughs> played with him on SNL. Maybe a couple years later and it was great and also I did like one of my favorite recording sessions ever with him which was Ringo Starr on drums yeah Jim Keltner also on drums Dr. John on piano and Mick Jagger playing harmonica and singing, and and we all like would sat in the circle, and like Bill Withers showed up, and we started writing a song together, and then like me and Mick wrote another song. Like it was it was just really. What album's this stuff on? I don't even think it's released. It was for Joe Walsh. Oh yeah, for Joe Walsh. Yeah, it was for Joe Walsh. And was he didn't it? even put it out. I wonder if he will. When, was he there? Yeah, he was there. Sorry, I'm like there was more people there too. It was just so many. But it was, I think it was maybe the first time Mick and Ringo had done, I think they were saying something about maybe it was the first time or whatever. I was like, oh my God. Uh, but so,
0: but you know that now, but then that now, you but were still just, it was just a bunch of dudes that were playing. But you knew Mick yeah, at that point. Yeah,
2: I knew Mick at that point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, I guess like a couple of questions about this because like you're know, playing with these guys. When you play with somebody like specifically, instead of asking you, you know, what's it like to play with them? (laughs) The most
2: dreaded question. (laughs) Right. But
0: I mean, but when you talk in terms of like a musical conversation, so if we frame it differently as opposed to you, you know, telling me what these these artists are like, you know, what was the experience for you and how was it different when you play with somebody like um, when you move from Jeff Beck to Herbie's band, uh, what, you know, what, how does the conversation change? Hmm.
2: How does the conversation change?
0: Because if you're looking at it that way and then when you like play with Bob Weir or you play with, um, with Dr. John who like that crew of people, you know, historically for somebody who's a freak for that kind of music would just like blow their mind. But you, you know, seeing you have this, uh, this purity due to your, um, I don't know. It's not really ignorance, but just sort of your myopia (laughs) about your own work, you know that your single-mindedness and you, you know your, your kind of detachment from it, uh, that you're coming to it with a sort of uh, an open mind that other people wouldn't have. You know, going into knowing all of Doctor John's shit, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, like when you play with Herbie and you're having an experience like you had, like that moment where Beck says, "You know, do the solo and you lay it out and he integrates it." Mm-hmm. So he's got to be a different type of artist in terms of how he thinks and approaches music than someone like Herbie Hancock. You know, what is the difference? For you as a bass player.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that aesthetically I could necessarily point out the differences. I just know that like when you have conversations with people with that much experience, you're bound to pick up and integrate some of those nuances into your own playing. Right. In terms of my role as a bass player with them, that does vary according to what, I think they want and what they're throwing at me yeah you know I mean so
0: it's instinctual a lot of it mm Mm-hmm. yeah
2: yeah Yeah. it is like a conversation yeah it's just you just got to listen
0: and then there's fits and starts like there are times where I mean I I wouldn't say that you're going to be hitting bad notes but where the conversation doesn't quite sync up until it does or I guess as a bass player you have a little more
2: I I, I suppose if 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 your role is to be a side man mm-hmm. essentially like I'm I'm there to hopefully make them sound good and so if anybody like if if Jeff would make a mistake for instance you know Jeff is like the singer they always say follow the singer so if Jeff goes somewhere else we just have to go follow him and go it's not like we're fighting for right. you know spotlight or anything right. like that we're all just sort of trying to like lift him up and, right. and in in times then he'll also feature us and then right. he's doing that for us right so I guess you know in a perfect world, that would happen in any band too, but right. you know the the these particular ensembles that I've been a part of um there is a lot of improvisation,
1: yeah, you know when and you love that
2: I love it, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. and when you play with um with somebody like Bob Weir. Mhm. The type of improvisation that you're going to do with Beck as opposed to Herbie and then as opposed to sort of the kind of like, you know, country rock, you know, slash psychedelic noodling that 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 Weir kind of invented. Mhm. You know, what's what's the the vibe difference when you play with somebody like Bob?
2: I think that there is in, in each style of music a, a vocabulary that consists mainly of don'ts more than do's. Yeah. And so you just adhere to that.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. So like when you're playing uh, some sort of, a, you know, St. Stephen or something <laughs> or one of Bob's songs, whatever right. he's up to, you, you don't necessarily do a weather report style <laughs> bass playing. <laughs> <laughs> You kind of roll along.
2: Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, he's also like a really open musician that loves hearing different approaches to his music. And he's, I mean, the first time I played with him. With Bob. Yeah, with Bob. Yeah. Was, I I just went to go and watch one of his shows. And I was just sitting in the audience. And all of a sudden, the security guy points to me and says, excuse me, ma'am, get up, get out of your seat. And i like, wait. I, did, I didn't. do any drugs. I, yeah. I didn't take any photos. Wait, yeah. What did I do? Uh, yeah. He said, "Come with me," and he like he makes me follow him all the way to the stage. Yeah. He's like, "Do you know all along the watchtower?" I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "You're on in three minutes." I'm like, okay. <laughs> and like, you know, the, Bob's manager told me later. He's like, "You know, I'm so glad you did that because some musicians, when when Bob does that, they'll." They'll they'll say no because they then don't feel prepared because they're put on the spot and because you did that I he told me how much that like, he just loves you that you you just went along <laughs> and like and then he's asked me back since like he he loves being off the cuff yeah you know
0: keeps it keeps it live keeps, keeps it, it fresh you know right 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 keeps you in the present
2: yeah but I mean I suppose. The world of improvisation is, is very different to if I go and get called to do a session, like whether it, it was m- the sessions with Prince or it's like any other kind of project that, you know, sometimes you just had to play very simple and play for the song. Right. You know? Right. So in the studio, it's a, a whole other whole And other And thing.
0: what was that like with Prince?
2: Amazing. Yeah. That be- was actually my first time recording to tape. Uh-huh. And I was surprised with how- To f-
0: tape or to, you mean tape
1: tape? tape like tape. analog, yeah. yeah. Okay.
2: And I was surprised at how fast he works. Uh-huh. Like he likes to just like, okay, lay it down. Like, here we go. Take one. That's it. Okay. You, you go to punch. Are uh, you sure about that? Listen again. Are you sure you want to punch? Okay. Okay, fine. You get Let's one punch. chance. One chance. When you punch in. Yeah. Like if if there's, if you want to overdub. Like yeah. Right. Replace. Replace the right. right. yeah, yeah, yeah. segment that- yeah. So, and I remember him just like, okay, you ready? you're punching right now. That was it. Can I have another No.
0: <laughs> okay. Because it's on tape.
2: Yeah, because it's on tape. But I mean, you can punch multiple times on tape. I mean, it does wear it out every time you, but I think it was more about the mindset of like, let's do this and move forward. And let's not just like micro focus, like on all of these. And t- little-
0: and I would imagine doing it on tape, you know, it does make it a little more precious,
2: yeah. yeah yeah but I mean there's other musicians that do that and don't do that on tape it's just it I mean y- you really need to have a discipline to do that now because you you can do anything now you can edit the shit out of anything right. so it's harder to make a um a real authentic you know record that's played live like that doesn't happen that much anymore is yeah. a band goes into a studio and and just cuts a record which is actually how I did my record this current record that's about to be released
0: you did it played it live yeah and um how was this relationship because i know you opened for the who with some of this new material Mm -hmm. and that you know you never played with pete you know on any of his stuff but he likes you
2: yeah well he i played on one show which was a tribute to him Mm -hmm. and he saw me perform and like after the show he said a couple really nice things to me in passing That was my only experience meeting him.
0: But he gave you that gig.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much was him or the management because it was like, it was a really interesting turn of events where, like, a month before they went on the tour, I had finished my record and I wanted to send it to him to hear what, like, hear if he liked the music because it was a very different direction to what anybody had known me as. Yeah. Like, people identify me as a bass player yeah it was played with Jeff or whoever else not as a singer songwriter right and so I wanted to send it to someone that I really respect and so I sent it to P and I said let me know what you think and you know kind of half joking like and if you ever need someone to open for you guys like I'd, l- I'd love to accept the challenge and he wrote back pretty quickly just saying like wow I love this music this is great and you know, I'll send it on to the management and see what they think in terms of opening for for any of our shows. And he and he wrote some really like detailed responses to my songs. Like he yeah. gave me real feedback. Uh huh. Which is really nice of him. Yeah. And then I got a phone call from his management saying, you know, it's your lucky day because the band that we were gonna use for the first leg of the tour can't make it because of some immigration issues, so would you like to do the tour?
0: Yeah. And that was how that yeah. came. And what's your relationship with Jackson Brown?
2: So, I met Jackson that same night that I met Mick Jagger. At the
0: 25th anniversary thing? Yeah,
2: yeah. So, Jackson and Bonnie Raitt came up to me after the show. And I'd actually heard of Jackson because my dad said he liked his music, but I hadn't heard his music yet. Right. And they were both just really nice. Yeah. And uh, I said, oh, you know, uh, my dad loves your music and by the way, like, uh, I'm just starting to write songs with lyrics, and, you know, know, we're like, where do you live, da-da-da, we figured out we both live in L.A., and he said, well, we'll love to hear your music sometime, and, yeah, so, like, when I came back to L.A., I I took him up on his offer, and I played him some music, Uh, and after, like, some show that he was at, like, just in my car, I played him some music, and... He gave me some advice, and then I said, I'm going to go into the studio with these people, and, oh, well, let me know how that goes. Okay, cool. And so I did that, and um, play him the music, and, hey, what do you think of this song? Oh, I really like that one. Like, uh, you know, the the chorus to me says this. Well, do, do you think that this lyric means this, da-da-da-da? And we do that kind of same talk that I did with Anthony Jackson, but yeah. about songwriting. And not in the car. <laughs> Sometimes in the car. Yeah. <laughs> um, And, uh, and, and so I think just, he also became like, sort of like a mentor or he doesn't like me to use the term mentor because he's like, no, you're a peer, you know, you're a friend, like you help me too. Like I ask you about things and it's fine, you know, like mentor, you know, whatever. It's just a term, but like, he's really given me like a lot of advice and support. Um, and he does that. That that's what's so amazing about him. Like he does, he did that with Blake Mills. He did that with a band called Doors. I don't know if you know them. Yeah. Um, a, a, quite a few musicians. Like he'll give guitars to, and yeah, he's such a generous guy. And he's got so, that
0: studio. We played at. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He's just j- showed support throughout the making of this whole album.
0: I, I just find it sort of uh, impressive and amazing, at least by how you talk about these people. That it seems that most, if not all, of these men were appropriate with you. Yeah. And that's a that's a testament to your talent and to your person and to them. Like, you know, it's not a story you hear usually. You know, usually right. there's got to be a few stories where it's sort of like, oh that guy. Okay. Yeah. But not too many. Huh?
2: Maybe it's because I looked like I was twelve, just a little bit too young.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's where you really find out who a man is, I think. <laughs> I guess they're all pretty good dudes. So the new record is you stepping to the front in a real way. Like, did you send me the whole record? or did I just get part of it.
2: I sent you ten songs. Ten songs, right? Yeah,
0: that's it. Mm-hmm. Ten songs, reasonably length record. Yeah, yeah. You didn't do you know nineteen songs. No. Yeah, and they're all you, you know they all sound like you, but a lot of them are different in tone. Like there's some real fucking rockers. Mm-hmm. Like the the opening song is like you know it's big. It's like rock music. And then there's some jazzier ones and some nice vocal stuff. And your voice is beautiful. And, you know, it, some of it seems very personal to me. And I hope you're okay. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> well, no, just like relationship stuff. Wouldn't it I mean, wouldn't literally...
2: that be funny if, like, I put the record on and I just start getting all these phone calls like, Tal, you are you okay? okay? Do you want me to bring you some chicken soup? Do you want to take a walk on it, the beach? It wasn't like
0: that. But you're very you're sort of, you know, self-reflective and, and you know, frustration and, what seemed like relationships and stuff mm-hmm. is all in there. Yeah. But, you know, how did you pick the band for this record?
2: I did go into the studio with several ensembles. Yeah. And one night I went to go have sushi with Benmont.
0: Tench. Benmont Tench. Yeah. yeah. And, I've talked uh, to him. He's a great guy.
2: And he invited Jeremy Stacey. Uh-huh. And then Jeremy invited his brother Paul, Stacy, and I'd met Jeremy Stacy at the two thousand and seven Crossroads Festival that I played with. Who Jeff does Ke- he play with? He plays with Cheryl Crow, uh, um, Noel Gallagher. Oh, I mean, he kind of plays with everyone. Studio guy and live. Yeah. Um. And uh, so we're having uh, sushi. Yeah. And afterwards, I say, "Hey, do you guys?" Because Ben wanted had already heard my music, and he'd also been another person that was very supportive. I said, Do you guys want to go sit in my car and listen to some music? Yeah. I'm taking on I the tradition it. of, of yeah. Anthony Jackson. And so I played my music and they're like, Oh, this is great, you know, like I'm like, Well, maybe we could go into the studio sometime, it'd be really great. I I just met this guy named Blake Mills, who's a amazing guitarist and they hadn't heard of him yet. And I said, like, just trust me, he's he's really great. Because <laughs> yeah. Blake had been coming over to my house like pretty regularly, they're just like jamming you know, with me, and we'd also be going to, like, Benmont's house almost weekly at one point, like, me and uh, Dawes and Blake and wh- whoever else was in ta- town. Yeah. And we'd just, like, Jackson, and we'd all play each other, like, what we were working on. Uh-huh. Like, oh, what do you think of this song? And we then we'd jam on some, like, Dylan songs or whatever. Yeah, That was happening, like, weekly. So, anyway, so I said, Let- let's go in the studio. And so I, I just said, let's just do one day, two songs, try this out. And uh, Paul, as Paul as a co producer with me, and Jeremy playing drums and Blake playing guitar. And I figured, like, everything else can just, like, sort of be an overdub or whatever. Yeah. So we, had, we went in and cut Corner Painter, which is the first song on the record. Yeah. And another song, uh, which didn't end up being on the record. And I knew right then and there that that was the song. That was going to be the linchpin for the rest of the record and i could now go home and write other songs with that sound in mind and so that's exactly what i did i wrote a bunch of songs and then i called the same musicians back as well uh i also called uh zach ray who i coincidentally also met another time a few months later when i was at sushi again with ben Mont, and zach ray was at a table next to us um, and he's just he recognized Benmont and was like hello hello, hello. I, and I met him and I I sort of thought like I bet you that guy's a good musician. Same sushi place. Same sushi place. I, I called Zach up. And I said, can I come by and play some songs with you? Yeah. And uh, I loved his playing, so I brought him into the ensemble too, and that was the band along with Benmont for the whole record.
0: Wow, it's a good bunch. Amazing. Yeah, I thought I thought the record was great. Oh, thanks. Now you're like front and center and just like killing it.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I I actually, when I picked up that guitar for the first time and cried and wrote a song and strummed every chord in history. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. All in one.
2: All in one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I started writing songs. Like that's what I, I actually began doing. Yeah. And then when I moved to America-
0: Yeah, you had to play with Jeff Beck and Herbie Hancock. Well, no, it wasn't had to. It was before
2: those gigs. Yeah. I started just focusing on being an instrumentalist. Right. So- uh, You're back to In in a sense, I was going back to my roots.
0: Yeah, to what you wanted to do to begin
2: with. Yeah. But with all this experience under my belt.
0: And and amazing support. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. All right, you want to play something?
2: I, I think If we so. can,
0: if we can hook it up, yeah. we'll do it. But that was, that's the end of the conversation part.
2: Oh, I was just getting started. Stop it.
0: <laughs> There's a little buzz, but I'm sure with the beauty of the music, it will all go away.
2: Is it easy to tell with the bleed in the room? What? Like if the bass is too loud or too soft?
0: You're talking to me like I'm an engineer and I'm just looking at a, a, a wavy thing. <laughs> the wavy thing looks good. It's not peeking out.
2: All right. This song's called Haunted Love.
1: Sufficiency lie your head upon my chest
0: double that buzz <laughs> that's so great only the buzz remains
2: love remains oh
0: yeah love remains Do-do. Yeah. thanks for doing it that was amazing right the amazing tall Wilkenfeld um, her new album love remains is available now wherever you get your music and uh, now I, if you're still here I want to uh, premiere for you this is the first time it's being heard outside of anyone who saw the movie in uh, South by Southwest. This is uh, the song from the Lynn Shelton film, Sort of Trust. It runs under the credits. It's uh, called New Boots. It's written by me and Tal Wilkenfeld, and it's uh, produced by Tal Wilkenfeld, and it features Tal, Zach Ray, Tamir Barzalay, and Jimmy Z Zavala, and uh, Doyle Bramhall, also on guitar. So uh, here's New Boots. Pretty good, right? I'm back for a second just to say Boomer Lives!